0: I was a huge fan of a band growing up, music band, Christian rock band called the Newsboys. I was all in. I was think I was around age 9 or 10, and I literally drew a picture of all of them uh, from looking at the CD booklets that had the lyrics, pictures of the band. I'd even collected magazine articles about them and so forth. I sent the picture in and I got some mail back from them. Oh, we appreciate the, uh, the, the picture of us all. And in the course of my life, first around 1998, and I think the last time was around 2018, I saw the Newsboys three times in concert. Different band members here and there, some of them the same, and actually the last time I saw them in concert, they were doing a tour called United, because they reunited some of the old band members, and a lot of them looked older than I remember them as a kid. Um, And I don't always put it together when I'm there at the concert. But the same voices, the same musicians who were at a studio somewhere, usually Nashville probably, and recorded their voices and their instruments to go out into the world through various medias. Before it was tape and CD, now it's just you download a track off the Internet are the exact same physical presences up there on the stage, strumming away at the instruments, singing the same songs into the microphone. The same people in the same songs. And in fact, I remember having to correct Calvin a few times. He, I think he just kind of thought that every time I turned on the radio in the car, like, what else do they do besides sing to you all the time? No, this is a recording. (laughs) Uh -uh. (laughs) In fact, the newsboys will go around the nation, sometimes they've gone around the world, singing the same songs, bringing their physical presence with them, likely exciting and entertaining other fans who have perhaps listened to recordings, but they now have the pleasure of seeing them live before them, singing the songs that have perhaps entertained them from recordings. Philippians 2, 5-11, where we're at requires, I feel like, a lifetime of meditation, likely to fully appreciate and do justice to such a passage. There are so many things to unpack about it. For me, it's like a mountain summit with with multiple trails to this said summit, and each trail is different. Some have difficulties and hard climbs, and others just have switchbacks and are for easier hiking. For now, when I read it, I just want to saturate in the awesome reality that Paul is saying. Because, as Christians, we likely profess and believe what the doctrine says. But do we grasp, do we truly comprehend what is really being said? That the God of the universe walked among us. The God of the, the creator of the stars you see at night. The architect of the Grand Canyon or Glacier National Park. The one who controls the highest of rogue waves and the fiercest of hurricanes. The sovereign over all tribes, tongues, cultures, and places. The one who knew you and me literally before there was even any concept of time. He walked the dirt you and I walk. He saw the very star He created from below the earth's atmosphere where we see it. He breathed the oxygen He made for us to breathe. He breathed it. Our God, our Creator, breathed it. That is what is being professed in passages like today's do invite you to stand with me, if you're able, as we read the word of the Lord. And let's take a look together at Philippians 2, 5 through 11. We read, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, Being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above all names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, as I've been, I feel like praying since this morning, even though it's not Christmas time, my heart's prayer in this message is to, oh, come, let us adore him. There are many things in this passage, and in my inadequacy of the human mind, I rely on your spirit to share what it is you want. What are your purposes for today? What do you wish to share from these scriptures? How do you want us, this, want this doctrine to affect our lives this morning? Why did you bring us here this morning to hear you? And so I pray and know that while you will be faithful to share what it is you wish to share, help us to be obedient, responsive, and faithful to respond the way you would desire us to respond. And we know, Holy Spirit, that you have the power to equip us to do that. Thank you for being an awesome God who deserves our awe and wonder, and worship. We ask and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. There are really five movements I have planned for today. But to scare you less, I'm going to categorize them into three. <laughs> the first category, the movement, is short. It's, it's context where we place this hymn, which it seems to be in Philippians 2, a hymn, what it seems to be into the context of Philippians. What does Paul have in mind when he goes into this? The second category contains three movements, and they are all about Christ. It's the majority of the text, and we are going to discuss Christ's condescension, Christ's crucifixion, And finally, Christ's conquest. And then the last category refers to humanity's response, and that is the confession. The confession of who Christ is. So three categories, context, Christ, and humanity. I'll just, you can just worry about that. And, uh, let us first consider context. That is, Paul is addressing a church that is apparently facing some disunity. And what brings this hymn on, this profession of doctrine concerning who Christ is, is an appeal to his readers for humility. Uh, to consider others more important than themselves. To have a, a mindset where the interest of others takes precedence. And as I, I looked in my own words, um, concluding the message last week, He wants to consider Christ, and so that's what Paul will now state much better on how Christ is a good example to follow when trying to adopt this mindset of humility. But another context I want us to consider, though, is the context of our entire series, Joy. And as I said last week, sometimes whenever you name a book of the Bible, you feel somewhat obligated to stick to that, whether it's in the text or not. So the idea of joy is used throughout the book of Philippians and it won't be stated clearly here in our passage of Scripture. However, hopefully one with a soft heart surrendered to the truth in this passage should find it rather easy and natural to respond with having joy in Christ. Unrelenting joy that Jesus is who Paul says he is And Jesus accomplished what Paul said he accomplished. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, Paul says. And it tells us this. Paul understands the normal bent of the mind. And he has the audacity to tell his readers to not let it be. Instead, to take the mind that was in Christ Jesus and follow that example. It's one of the hardest things to do, to think differently. I don't know, I was wired to think this way. Paul says it memorably and chronologically speaking when it comes to writing letters. He already wrote to the Romans, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. By the renewing of your mind. Right? Do you hear that? Uh, I know it's normal to think this way. It's innate. It's inborn. In the context of Paul's letter in the Philippians, the normal way of thinking would be self-centered. Selfish. Value my own interests above others. What drives me would be self-ambition and pride and what's good for me. There are others... But I'm most important, and I'm the one to look out for for most. And that's normal. And Paul is challenging his hearers with, look to Christ's example. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And so then Paul shifts categories. He's, he's made the appeal. Now he's going to describe Christ. And he starts with Christ's condescension here in verses 6 through the beginning of 8, he says, who existing in the form of God. Let's stop here. (laughs) Kevin, why? Just get it over with. But this is when English words have changed over time and thus can be misleading as they translate over from the original language of this letter, Greek. Because the phrase, in the form of, might suggest to us, substitution, or misidentification, or suggesting a similarity, but not the same of. You know, Pastor Dan Banham, some of you remember he was here earlier this spring, and I give him a hard time. He has one of those boxy cars that I like to call toasters. And just a big toaster with wheels. And and he likes that joke, and he, he thinks so too. And so, in fact, for Halloween one year over there in Beaverton, Oregon, you can forgive him for celebrating Halloween. He's in Oregon. But he, he dressed up his car to look like a toaster. And uh, he had this big cardboard lever on the back to look like whenever you push the toaster down, and he had two cardboard pieces of bread sticking out on the top. We could say it was in the form of a toaster. Because we realize it's not really a toaster, or else that would be a lot of bread and we'd need a lot of butter. But it looked like a toaster. The Greek word behind form here in Philippians 2 is not the same sort of idea, it's more than that. Form here, says one of my commentaries, means the true and exact nature of something, possessing all the characteristics and qualities of something. Hence, what Paul says later in this verse, that Christ has equality with God. Equality, same across the line. You think about the justice scales. It's not that you just dump God on one side and dump Jesus on the other side and God's still slightly higher. No, they're the same because they are the same. Jesus' followers recognized this about Him. John the Evangelist says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You find out he's talking about Jesus when he says in verse 14, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Even Jesus' opponents recognized this as well, that he was making this claim. John also records this exchange, where Jesus says, I and the Father are one. At this, the the Jews again picked up some stones to stone him. Notice the again here, because this isn't the first time Jesus said something like this. We read earlier in John, That the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This isn't a claim that came after Jesus' death and resurrection. It's a claim that Jesus himself made. As C.S. Lewis mused, and I put the quote in there because I'm about to butcher it in my paraphrase, but when it comes to Jesus, You're either all-in believing him, or you're an opponent. Because he doesn't seem to leave wiggle room. Because if you say he's a good man, a good moral teacher, but I don't think he's God, you're calling a good moral teacher a crazed lunatic and liar, because he said he was God. How can a good moral teacher lie? So you must be all-in. Paul was all-in. Jesus is god that 's why jesus himself that is what Jesus himself professed that 's actually what Jesus was killed for. you could look it up later luke twenty two seventy and seventy one and it's what jesus 's followers believe period and so even though he was in the form of God, he did not uh, consider equality with god something to be grasped, which is another Hard original Greek word to find a good English word for. Some say a thing to be exploited. Another one says to be used for his own advantage. Because grasped might conjure up the idea that there was a rule put in place, right? As if God the Father said, okay, Jesus is on earth. I'm removing some power. He needs to be fully man. Or, you know, I'm dialing back his miracle juice. He can only use a few here and there. But we see in the Gospel accounts, He calms storms. He expels demons by command. Whenever He tells others, it requires prayer or prayer and fasting. He claims authority to forgive sins, which no man has authority to do so. So the reality seems to be that Jesus, being God, didn't use His power for personal gain. In another context, but maybe still applicable, Paul writes in Romans 15.3, Christ did not please himself. Right? He, he still suffered. He knew tiredness so much that right before he calmed the waves, he was so tired he was sleeping in a hurricane, basically, feels like. He felt the sting of betrayal. He knew fear and stress. He sweated drops of blood in the garden wherein medical professionals do recognize that condition caused by the extreme uh, stress. Thus, Jesus' equality with God wasn't something to be exploited. Rather, he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself. Human likeness. You might say, found an appearance as man. This sounds like heaven. What you said in the form of God didn't mean as if Christ was in the form of or like a human. He was in the appearance of a man, but maybe not actually a man. Maybe just God with a man suit on. Well, just how like, just how like and in the appearance of Jesus is Paul getting at here? Paul says unashamedly in Galatians 4-4, God sent his son born of a woman under the law. Now without getting too graphic, for everyone present at that scene, presumably just Joseph and Mary and eventually some shepherds, I think the consensus would be that Jesus was fully man in all the senses beyond just likeness. Paul, likely after writing Philippians, would write a spiritual son of student of his Timothy, for there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man. Not the hmm, like man, or the man in appearance, the man of Christ Jesus. And so you might say, how does that quote in Timothy match with Paul's language here in Philippians, where he's mixing the two? And I haven't even began to unpack Colossians 1, which Christy read, and I don't intend to in this message. But the answer is, To your question, maybe, if if you're confused, I know. (laughs) There's a reason the Trinity is a tricky doctrine. There is an element of of mystery in faith. This is what we mean when we say Jesus is fully God and fully man. Both identities, both natures are fully expressed when describing Jesus. But I don't want to overlook the beginning of verse 6. He emptied himself. It's believed by many, and, I sh- and it should be easy to be agreed with by many, that the language here is not suggesting an emptying of deity or a release of some nature. The reason it should be easy to agree with is, as I just brought up, Jesus' miracles, His authority to forgive sins. and uh, Rather, the text is about the extent of His being a servant, His humbling and humiliation. He was so willing to not grasp or exploit his equality with god that he as isaiah 53:12 says he has poured out his life unto death so paul is being figurative here in philippians too just like we say oh that guy gave it his all he poured it all out into that endeavor so paul is using similar language christ emptied himself all of this is pointing us to christ's Condescension, And if we back out, we've uncovered that this Jesus, the, the man, is fully God. And as Jesus said to his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And, and we, we've seen evidence that he is fully God, as I've, as I've already stated, which makes it all the more amazing that he was willing to condescend. He was willing to be mistreated and abused as he was. People were plotting his death and they would win. He not only became man and servant, but he went further lower than I think I can comfortably say, lower than any of us. He had no stable permanent home. He had no fixed income. He was went sometimes hungry. Yes, he made fishes and loaves, but that was, again, was not for his own exploitation, but for witnessing. And we know he went lower than us because he was also crucified. That's the, the next point in our, uh, about Christ. His crucifixion, finishing out verse 8 here, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. You know, I was—I know this is going to surprise you, but my jokes don't magically come to me in the morning. I look for them. And uh, this morning I was looking for my joke. That's usually when I look for them. And it was a perfect joke because there was a reality show a while back, and I don't know if it's still on. don't think I even ever watched it. All I ever saw were advertisements. But the premise was that a CEO or an owner or a manager of a business would put on a disguise and work at the business that they owned or managed. And the businesses were usually so big that it seemed like the environment where they worked at could even be manned by employees who never saw their boss or CEO. It was almost, it seemed like kind of like a prank show, kind of this, ta-da, little did you know that the boss was at work today. And I get the idea that sometimes bad deeds were uncovered, right? Like maybe the employee who was on their phone more than the job had a rude awakening when he found out that the boss was there to witness they're misdeeds. My, my point is, is that this is not what Jesus was doing. Right? It was not, oh, how clever the boss showed up to work for 30 years. He came here. No. Rather, the God of the universe, the creator of the universe, became flesh. And what's even more appalling than this, as if God becoming flesh is easy to swallow, is that his mission was to go lower than any of us in our day would ever go and eventually taste death on a cross. See, Christ wants us to see, I, I mean, Paul wants us to see the complete role reversal, the complete 180, because crucifixion was the, the nadir of penalty, the, the punishment uh, and, and death, stripping naked, driving nails in the most sensitive nerve endings of the body. Usually, victims were eye level, so bystanders could mock, spit, and jeer. sometimes a ramp was was placed right below the buttocks, so you could rest that much longer staying alive as your wounds, injury, and pain prolonged as possible before you died. It was the ultimate indignity, the most immense humiliation it would be it would take all of the world 's media power of that time revealing the most vulnerable, humiliating. Dehumanizing spectacle for everyone to see out in public. It actually reminds me of a conversation I had with Friday. Maybe some of you re- uh, remember my friend Dale Granger. He was, he is in the military and, uh, he, he was deployed for a year and he just got back and I was talking with him and he says, I was in Saudi Arabia. I said, oh. He said, I went down to the market square. And uh, there were some kids playing some soccer, and I was kind of at what basically is a farmer's market. I think he called it a souk. And uh, he says, I left and came back the next day, and I realized that, that that place where they were playing soccer was cleared, and there was nobody there. And I was just kind of like, what's going on? And he says, eventually a crowd came together, and then a guy came with a sword and cut off the head of a guy in front of everyone. And he says, I realized later that they still have public executions in Saudi Arabia. And and this is kind of what crucifixion was, a public execution, and it was the most gruesome execution you could think of. And this is what came of God, is what Paul is saying. This is what he condescended to. And what's more is God not only condescended to this, but he also permitted and executed this. God himself did. Jesus says, I lay down my life. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. And after he rose again and ascended, his followers knew that. They knew it only happened because God allowed it. And Acts 4.28 tells us concerning all the enemies who conspired against Jesus namely Herod and Pontius Pilate, the Jewish and Gentile rulers, I believe it's Peter who, who prays, they carried out what your hand and will had decided beforehand that would happen. So Christ, God condescends. He condescends from deity to humanity to the lowest of humanity, and he is crucified. Before we continue on, let us back out and remember why Paul is sharing with us about Christ. Paul started this whole thing saying, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. How far are you willing to go for someone else? Or is it all about you? It wasn't all about God when he became flesh. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted, says Jesus. And when God became flesh and served humanity, served until He emptied Himself, we hear then from Paul about Christ's conquest in verse 9. Therefore God exalted Him. Note this, therefore. The Father is acting here in a direct response to Christ's obedience. God exalted Christ to the highest place and gave him the name above all names. Now, some will say that God is basically... Basically, Paul is saying that God made Jesus' name famous. Sorry, correcting list. Jesus' name famous. That's the point of this passage. But others say, and I intend to agree with the others, that we see in the remaining verses, namely verse 11, the name God gives to Jesus there... Every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. Lord here is Kurios. Now, this is, this is why you have the picture in your slight man. Outline, there we go. I hope that's not a foretaste of how I'm about to explain this. You know how in the Old Testament there's usually the word Lord with small caps, and then sometimes there's this a Lord with an O-R-D, not, not small caps, sometimes even a lowercase L. The authors are trying to make a differentiation there. The Lord with small caps is usually the name of God, Yahweh in the Hebrew. Meanwhile, the non-cap form is usually Adonai in the original language, which is referring to social superior or, or, or a master I just always think of mid Middle Eastern Knights or the aristocracy in Britain. Yes, my Lord. That kind of thing. Adonai. Well, why don't translators put in two names there? Why use Lord and Lord with a different font? Why not put in Yahweh and Lord or Yahweh and Master? And some translations actually are doing that. HCSB, another translation called LSB, which is an update of the NASB. There you go. And in fact... Older translations, like the American Standard Version from 1901, put in Jehovah. There is a debate that kind of still persists. Is God's name Jehovah or Yahweh? Long rabbit trail we could follow, but other translations still stick to Lord, and I think also for a good reason. The Old Testament was largely written in Hebrew. But what happened the years leading up to AD is the Old Testament was actually first translated to Greek. Which is called the Septuagint. And it is actually believed to be the primary Bible of people like Jesus, Peter, and Paul. The Septuagint. A Greek translation of the Old Testament. Does that make sense? Yes? Okay. And people think this because when Paul or Peter quote the Old Testament, sometimes the words change. Like if you see a New Testament, quoting an Old Testament, go back and read the Old Testament passage and sometimes you'll see slight word variations and changes. And that's because it's believed that Peter or Paul are quoting the Septuagint. Our English Bibles are usually direct translations from the Hebrew. Excuse me. The Jewish translators of the Septuagint When they brought the Hebrew over to the Greek, good Jews do not speak or write the name of God, Yahweh. So they put in Kurios, which is Lord, Adonai. Does that make sense? And so when English translators translated the Old and New Testament out of tradition, even though they're translating from Hebrew, but whenever it came to that one name, they put in Lord in all caps. And then they had small caps for Adonai. Does that make sense? Why do I bring all this up? Because I want to give you a lesson in this. No, I say all this because when Paul writes, Jesus Christ is Lord, kurios, he's saying Jesus, the man, Christ, just meaning anointed one, Christ is the Greek, Messiah is the Hebrew for the same idea is Lord. A good Jew says Karios, but he likely means none other than Yahweh. Right? Does that make sense? And for Paul to say this, and for God to do this, this really isn't a, a commendation or a graduation or a new thing for Jesus. It's a, it's a restoration. Jesus knows this too, and he says in John sixteen twenty eight, he says, I came from the Father and entered the world. In turn, I will leave the world and go back to the Father. Or he prays in his high priestly prayer, I have glorified you on earth by accomplishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. It's a restoration to who he always was. Does that make sense? Jesus' exaltation is a return to where he was and who he was even before the world existed. He knows he is Yahweh. Then why do Jesus and the Father God talk like they're two separate people? Are there two deities? No, even Jesus affirms the Shema. He he asked, what is the greatest commandment? In Mark 19.29, Jesus replied, This is the most important. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, kurios, our God, the Lord is one. So a few things are possible here, and I'm just doing this for the sake of humor, not because I really think this way, but in case if you do. Here's a few possibilities. Jesus believes that Yahweh is the one and only God. Meanwhile, all the self-deifying statements maybe really aren't self-deifying somehow. That's one possibility. Another idea is that we're getting conflicting reports. Either Jesus affirmed the Shema and didn't say self-deifying statements, or he didn't affirm the Shema, but maybe he somehow affirmed both the deity of Yahweh God the Father and of God himself. That's another possibility. The last idea is, I think, what mostly thousands of years of church history might go with, and that is Jesus affirms the, ex- the sole existence of one deity, but he also sees himself and sees Yahweh and furthermore sees the Holy Spirit as the essence of that one deity. And this doctrine of the Trinity is what the church has professed. It's explained in many ways. and every example of every explanation, there's usually some cranky old curmudgeonly, and that really doesn't help, statement. And if that's you, repent. Anyways, <laughs> some say legends use, like St. Patrick used the 3 leaf Clover, the shamrock, they gave an example of the Trinity. Some have spoken of the three forms of a given substance. Water can be water, liquid, or steam, which is gaseous, or ice, which is solid. Three different forms, all with unique qualities, but they're all made up of water. Some have spoken of identities, how I am simultaneously a son of Kent Davis, a husband of Christy Davis, a father of Calvin Davis, or I'm also a pastor Sometimes I can be all three of those, roll at once, supposing my dad and my son and my wife were all here while I was preaching. The point being is our text today, among many other texts which are in your outlines, and you can cut those out and put them in your Bibles, affirm these truths that appear conflicting to us. That God is Yahweh, Jesus is God, the Holy Spirit is God. And some say, or some wonder, well, do I really need to hold this doctrine, the Trinity? Because, Kevin, that word Trinity is not even in the Bible. As I've been alluding to, the authors of the Bible brush up against it, right? They say things like Jesus rose from the dead, and then over here it says God rose Jesus from the dead. But wait, over there it says the same Spirit who rose Jesus from the grave lives in you. And either it was really crowded at Jesus' tomb, or the same entity, the same one being, was rising from the grave. But there are groups calling themselves Christian who claim to be a oneness group, saying, we don't believe in the Trinity. What does Paul, our spirit-inspired author, says in view of, or as a result of, Christ's condescension, crucifixion, and conquest? We note at the end here a confession of Christ. Jesus has given the name above all names that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Israelites of the Old Testament, they're in Babylon, but finally a good leader from Persia, after Persia takes out the Babylonians, releases the Israelites. His name is Cyrus. And the prophet Isaiah is speaking on behalf of God. In Isaiah chapter 45, he's he's stating basically things like, Isn't this my character? Didn't I tell you I'd rescue you? And we get to one of my favorite verses in Isaiah 45. Picking it up in verse 22, we read, Turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth, note that in the Old Testament, all the earth, not just the Israelites. For I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, truth has gone out from my mouth, a word that will not be revoked. Every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will swear allegiance. Every knee bow, every tongue swear allegiance. Sounds like what Paul just said about Christ in Philippians 2. Also, turn to me and be saved reminds me of Jesus' words in John Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in Him may have eternal life. Right? Just God said, turn to the bronze serpent to be saved by faith. And as for Jesus, those who look to Him will be saved. But we see Paul taking language from Isaiah where Yahweh was speaking, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will swear allegiance. So now Jesus fulfills this role. Because Jesus is Yahweh. He is. And so, now what? Right? We've, we've unpacked a few lines about Jesus, the before context. Paul was urging his hearers to have the mind that was also in Christ Jesus. And after such a long statement, blatantly revealing that Jesus is none other than the creator of the universe, Paul will understandably encourage his hearers then to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. Whenever you're professing Jesus, you're professing Him, the risen King, Lord of Lords, Creator of the universe, Sovereign over all. And I think as we consider Christ's condescension, that that here is God when He became flesh. This is what He did. This is what He chose to do. I talked about this last week, but He chose to condescend. Heaven forbid it, but I hesitate to think about this. If I was God, it's not what I would do, right? I'd get to planet Earth and I'd say, "Whoa, this is really jacked up, okay? These people need to go. <laughs> that group of people should stop eating each other. Uh, those guys should never get guns. That group of people should never begin to tamper with X, Y, Z. But when the God who has every right to be offended when he has the resources to do what you or I might do with our warped, impatient sense of justice, Christ chose condescension. And he chose crucifixion. Not only did the sovereign condescend, but the very people he condescended to repaid him by nailing him to a tree, naked, whipping him, thrusting down some thorns into his skull because the flesh we ripped off his back by rocks and glass shards wasn't enough when we flogged him. We spat on Him. This is God. And when God rose from the grave, He conquered, He was victor. That should bring us unrelenting joy because this is who God is. He is grace. He comes in humility. We came in sin. He offered His life. We took it. But He rose and He offers forgiveness, not retribution. And so in joy we become partakers. This is unrelenting joy. Isn't there joy in a God who takes everything, absolutely everything, from the highest of offenses, murdering God, to the longest of records, our sins, and He repairs, He redeems, He restores. That's who He is. So if you don't understand the Trinity, you can still take joy in the Trinity. Amen? Let's pray. Father, some things, I confess, as I grew up as a Christian, I started to hear things so often that I just took everything for granted. And I never stopped to consider the awesome power, wonder, and reality of what it is we believe. Thank you, God, for being the perfect example of humility. It is a paradox in our minds that the one who controls the entire universe would also be the perfect example of humility that we could never aspire to outside of the Holy Spirit's power. So help us, Holy Spirit, to be like-minded, to know Christ in our minds and to practice Christ in our everyday living, to be as humble as you are, to be as serving as you are, to be as patient as you are with our kids, with our spouse, with our family, friends, neighbors, heaven forbid, even with our government and leaders to be patient and kind and intervening graciously even for our enemies. Father, we love you and we thank you. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would do this work in us. Help us to do this work throughout the coming days, months, and years. We love you, Jesus, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.